This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as a startup person or maybe just an upstart, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Elad Gill, the co-founder of Color Genomics and longtime startup advisor. I've talked to him before about Color Genomics and other things, but now he's the author of a new book called High Growth Handbook, Scaling Startups from 10 to 10,000 People. Elad, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks so much for having me. So let's go through your background first um, before we start, because I want people to get a sense of who you are. You're not just some person pontificating on startups, of which there are many. So let's go into what you do and how you got to where you are. Sure, yeah. I mean, if we want to start at the very beginning, I have sort of a weird background, so... Go um, right ahead. Birth is not accepted. <laughs> yeah, I was born in Jerusalem. Okay. And, <laughs> um, so, uh, Next year in, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I, I got my PhD in biology from MIT. I have a, a background in math and biology. Mm-hmm. And I moved out here uh, right as the entire um, internet was collapsing. So I had terrible market timing in terms of moving out so here. So which collapsed, the 2002 uh, one? The 2002 one, yeah. Okay. And so uh, I not only chose the wrong time to come here, I also chose the wrong market. I went and worked at a telecom equipment company. Oh, nice. I went through multiple rounds of layoffs. Um, I eventually left that. Um, a year or two later, I joined Google, and um, I helped start the mobile team there, uh, helped by Android, was involved with a lot of early yeah, things there. I got there. big, I hear. I, I hear so. I, yeah. I don't know if you use it or not. But. No, I don't actually use Apple. <laughs> well, there go goes ahead. that whole conversation. I, I tried. I tried. I've tried. I yeah. just, it's, it was designed by the Google people. That's all I can say about it. <laughs> yeah, I not mean, great UI, but great platform. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, I left then to start a company that Twitter bought. Um, Twitter bought my company, which is an early data infrastructure company, when Twitter was about 90 people. Mm-hmm. I stuck around. Explain for, the company that they bought. It was yeah, it was, it was basically... Um, is one of the really early developer infrastructure companies, mm-hmm. and it allowed any developer to build a geolocation-enabled application. And so mm-hmm. just like Twilio allows you to add telephony or Stripe allows you right. to add payment, we allowed you to add other features. And Twitter bought us back when they had this thriving developer ecosystem that they were going to really develop. Remember and that? And obviously that changed. So Yeah. Um, they had those big parties and events. Yeah, it was great. Them. Yeah, yeah while well, it lasted, it was really good. Um, and... Uh, so my role at Twitter was really to help scale the company from 90 people to 1,500 people over two and a half years. So I was involved with a lot of operationally intensive things there, user growth, analytics, scaling recruiting, the M&A team worked for me. And who was me. the CEO at this time? Because um, I don't mean to be that rude. But sure, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. When we were acquired, it was Ev. And then as I morphed into broader and broader roles, it was Dick. Okay. Um, Costello. Dick Costello. And then I left Twitter to start this company called Genomics. Along the way, though, I'd been investing in startups and... Um, I've been involved with a number of companies that have really broken out since. So I invested in Airbnb, Coinbase, Instacart, Gusto, Wish, Stripe. We're going to talk about why you picked them. I'm, I want to get into that later. But sure. so you were doing investing on the side, yeah. and then did color genomics, and that was a real shift. It goes back to mm-hmm. your roots, obviously, your original roots. And explain color genomics. I think it was a real. There was a bunch of people like you that shifted mm. into medical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, which was an interesting... Sure, yeah. I think the origin of color was really based on uh, two things. One is my co-founder story, who's now the CEO, Ahmed mm-hmm. Meraki. And he's very public with the fact that he himself is a BRCA2 carrier. His mother's had this breast cancer. This is a carrier for breast cancer. Uh, exactly. And Morocco. so uh, he himself has uh, cancer risk in his family. And it was really hard to get information or test results or be able to even take tests uh, for different types of genetic disorders. And so the idea of the company was to ask, how can you build a platform where you marry software to genomics to allow people to really understand what they're at risk for? Which seems an easy idea, but has been hard for Silicon Valley. I, I think in general, healthcare is a very hard industry Always. for a number of reasons. Google so. was in it, if you remember. And yeah, yeah, they were in it, out of it, in it, out involved of it. So. Or I don't even remember at this yeah. point. And there were lots of different startups in the area. But this was one of the first around cancer, especially mm-hmm. breast cancer. Yeah, and, exactly. and 
different things. And so why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I think uh, part of it was just the sheer human impact of it. You know, ultimately, you hit a point in your career where you want to do things that really empower people in, in ways that, um, in this case, are literally life-saving. And that impact has ended up hitting much closer to home in a lot of ways than we expected. Um, so, for example, one of our investors, uh, his fiance at the time took our test. It turned out she was a BRCA carrier as well. Her mother got tested. It turns out that her mother was a carrier. And so her mother elected to have a oophorectomy, and they found that she had stage three cancer at the time. Mm-hmm. And so now every time that I see them, they're not married, they have kids. Um, every time I see them, they say, well, thank you for yeah. uh, saving the mother, our, our mother or mother-in-law. Right. So it's yeah. been very you powerful. You don't get that at Twitter. Thank you for that tweet. Uh, <laughs> I think Twitter's had its own uh, large we'll impact. We'll get into that but, later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so you did this, and then? Uh, and now, I, you know, I stepped down to CEO about two years ago. My and why did you do over. that? Uh, it was for three reasons. Number one is... Um, you know, I've been operating for a long time, and at some point, you, you just don't want to do yet another sales comp review. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the set of things <laughs> that I was nice doing, yeah. <laughs> the, Thank the, you for telling the truth. <laughs> yeah, the set of things that I was doing, eventually, they were still interesting, but it wasn't as novel as the first time I did it. Um, second, we'd hit a scale of about 100 people or so, and people were ping-ponging between me and Altman for decisions. Mm-hmm. And we thought it'd be best to just have one person that you can clearly go to. Right. And then lastly, I think Altman... Um, you know, on his side, really wanted to be CEO. He was ready for it. He'd been ready for a decade to, to be CEO of a company. And so it's the right time to make a transition. Mm-hmm. And so you, what do you do for them now? What is your... Uh, I'm a board member now. So I, I help out where I can, both on the board level. I've been helping out with a couple of large partnerships or deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really morphed more and more into a board role versus anything so else. So you've, you've, you've jumped from company to different companies, different areas, um, a lot of the similar stuff that you were doing. And so you decided to write this book. So explain what was the thinking behind it. Yeah, the, the book happened a little bit organically. Um, I sat down over Christmas break about two years ago, and I just only wrote for a week uh, because just like with early stage companies, there's the same set of questions over and over again. Right. For late stage founders, I kept getting the same questions. And so I said, well, I'll just write this guide and maybe I'll just post it as a website in terms of how do you really navigate high growth mm-hmm. and how do you deal with internationalization or M&A or raising late stage right. funding rounds. Right. Um, and so I, I put this thing all together. I was about to launch it as a website. And um, I was talking to John Collison, one of the founders of Stripe, and I right. mentioned I've done this thing. Uh, he asked to see it. He circulated to a bunch of his friends, and he wrote back to me um, a day or two later. He said, hey, can we actually publish this at Stripe? And right. so Stripe Which now they're is, big and publish. They publish a lot of stuff. They publish a lot of stuff. They're quarterly yeah. and Atlas Guides yeah. and other things. So that, that's sort of what led to the genesis of the book. All right. But you sat down. Why did you feel like it? Just because you were like, hey— I had these problems, and I just encountered them a lot with the people. Yeah, it's it's the same questions over and over. And so I thought, well, maybe I could just direct somebody to a website instead of having to spend an hour talking through the same issue, although I'm always happy to talk through it. All right. So talk about what you were thinking then doing the book. You just decided to put it together as a book. Uh, yeah, so once Stripe offered to publish it, I said, great, let's let's go for it. Right, because a lot of people do these things on Medium. You get your, like, 10 things from yeah, exactly. Y Combinator people. They seem to have one every five minutes. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So, They're all similar. I don't find many of them that illuminating. Yeah, I was going to do only top 10 lists, so I thought. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then I pivoted away from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the book is basically an intermix of sort of my own direct experiences, and it's very tactical. So, mm-hmm. And then interviews with some of the leading lights of Silicon Valley who've operated at scale, like Reid Hoffman or Shannon Stubo or Shannon's other folks like that. I'm glad yeah, you she's talked great. to Shannon. Yeah, she's very good. So yeah. uh, we talked about how do you evolve a marketing communications organization, for right, example. Right, for that one. And so I avoided the sort of canned A players, hire A players. Yeah. Because that's really non-useful advice. Yeah, I like, know. What do you actually do with that? Are you going to look for A player on the resume or something? Yeah, right. Yes. I'm um, an A player. How yeah. do you decide? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Exactly. There's a lot of sort of short, pithy things that I find that are meaningless. meaningless. Right, yeah, exactly. exactly. And so yeah. the purpose of the book was so what's tactical. the hardcore tactical advice that allows you right. to really hire an executive team and buy other companies and raise money and all the rest of it. All right. So let's go through that. Let's start to talk about that in the next section. We'll talk about that also. And then I'd love to know where you think startups are going. Mm. Um, So what do you think that – did you come up with key things, key metrics or key kind of things? Or did you just go Mm -hmm. section by section? So here's the PR part. Here's the market. Yeah, it's literally section by section. So there's a section, for example, on product management and what's Mm -hmm. a good product management. Well, let's talk about that since you were involved. Yeah. You know, uh, fundamentally, it it breaks down things like what are the different types of product managers? So Mm -hmm. do you hire somebody differently if they're uh, focused on a back-end product versus front end or if they're more business centric versus not. So if you have a SaaS company, you may end up hiring different people than if you have a consumer internet company. So Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of differences in the role. And then there's a set of best practices in terms of how do you actually run a product management organization? How do you think about product roadmapping? 
how do you have a natural tension with engineering and design and other areas? Because you're mm-hmm. always going to have tension there, which is good sure. and healthy. Um, and so it sort of goes through those different areas mm-hmm. and basically fleshes out, you know, for example, for product management, what are key things you should be doing? How should you be thinking about hiring for it? Mm-hmm. And how do you think about um, the setup? And, and when you're doing this, the idea that is that you one of the things that startups think of, I, I want to get to this first, is that they think they're all special, mm-hmm. like that they're different than everyone else. And they are yeah. quite the same. It's the same person I see across from mm-hmm. me a lot of the time. I mean, individually, <laughs> yeah. there's individual yeah. differences. But talk about that idea that, that people, do, you know, they have this sort of mythology of Silicon Valley mm-hmm. as being this special sparkly uh-huh. place that yeah. isn't just like a lot of it is block and tackle. I, I think yeah. about that a lot lately um, in yeah. our own businesses. Some of it's just basic block mm-hmm. and tackling that is... Yeah, I think basically I almost have two opposing views on it. Uh, one is that the only good generic startup advice is that there's no good generic startup advice. Okay. You know, like no. everything should be taken in context. But the flip of it is, to your point, there's lots of things that just work. Mm-hmm. And there's no point in trying to reinvent those things. And people who try to reinvent right. those things tend to fail. Right. Like there's a way to do sales that works really well for enterprises. Mm-hmm. And if you start hiring a bunch of PhDs in computer science to do your sales, it's probably not going to work so well. Right. And so I do think people try to reinvent things too much or... You know, anytime you see, for example, a company adopting holacracy, it's like run for the oh, yeah. run for the exit. We've written about that. Yeah. Um, because ultimately, there there are some ideas that are just fundamentally bad. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, people haven't changed in thousands of years in terms of their fundamental drivers, mm-hmm. and people want clarity of organization. They want a central purpose. They want right. all these things that if you don't provide them with it, then you'll end up with a more chaotic environment. And I think founders are almost like feral animals. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like oh, raising the wild. I think. Um, I was saying that. I think the. Uh, uh, many founders, including myself, uh-huh. um, tend to be, I think, much more okay with chaotic environments. They may not like hierarchy as much. Mm-hmm. They may not, may not like a lot of things that drive them to be founders. Right. But then they assume that everybody else that they hire is the same way. Right. That's and, a very and, good point. And in reality, an people point. are very different. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, most people that you're going to hire employees for a reason, mm-hmm. and they want stability, and they want common purpose, and they want focus, and they want to know who their manager is, right. and they want to have a career ladder and career path. So I do think that that's one of the big mistakes that founders often make is they, mm-hmm. they impose their own or project their own views onto others. Well, that happens a lot, correct? I mean, when you think mm-hmm. about sort of – before we get into actually the specifics, I would love to give this a general idea. I mean, what do you think some of the myths of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur mm. are that aren't so – I think there's a number of them. That one is a yeah. because they do impose their, their – it's really fast. Well, it's because they're yeah. egomaniacs most there, there, much there, of the there's time. A, there's a giant Not you. Yeah. Everybody else. You, know. <laughs> you say that and look away. You're like, ah, not <laughs> when you. When you leave, I'll say Everybody else. else. Yeah, I know. Egomaniac too. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, so I'll give you an example <laughs> myth that I think is I very – uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, one example myth would be um, – that you need co-founders. Yeah. And so if you look at the most successful companies in technology, at least by market cap, uh, it's either ones where there was a strong single founder or there was a dominant founder who really just made the decisions. Apple would be an example of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, LinkedIn, it was mainly Reid Hoffman. Facebook, it was largely Zuck. Um, and they do have partners. They do. They have secondary partners like Gates and Balmer. That was critical. Yeah, they have secondary partners, but Balmer came in when they were yes. twenty people or something. Right. And so I think it's more about constantly finding people in the organization who are going to be that central partner. To your point, mm-hmm. but I think that's different from needing a co-founder at day one. Right. Right. And so you it's end the Larry up. and Sergey disease. I think. Yeah. Twin, exactly. The evil twin disease. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think they pulled it off. I think Stripes pulled it off. There's a, a couple. Although there was that a have. dominant partner there too, at, at, uh, which Google? is Larry. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that people over-index on, oh, is there a co-founder or not? And I think in general, sometimes it's better not to have a co-founder because mm-hmm. you can make decisions cleanly. You don't have to argue about yes. everything. You know, like there's a yes. lot of things that it actually cleans up. Yeah, that's why I had to kill Malt Mossberg. Oh, are you serious? That's where he went. I was <laughs> no. wondering if it's behind those super curtains on the floor me. over here. It worked out for me. It's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Yeah. We, we ended up agreeing a ton. Hmm. Um, so it worked out well. And we had different points of view. But it was just an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Um, so that's one. So not left What else? Yeah. Um, I think the other big myth is um, the extent that people focus actually on the founding team and the founders versus on the market. And so I think Andy right. Rackleff uh, from Benchmark uh, has this great sort of Rackleff's law, which is oh, he has a law. Yeah. I you haven't heard the law? Had a law. Oh my God. No, please. Yeah. So Rackleff's law is um, you know uh, great team, terrible market, market wins. Okay. Can- great team. Terrible market, market, market wins. wins. Yes, absolutely. Terrible team, great market, market wins. And great okay. team, great market, something magical happens. Right, okay. And yes. I think the middle one is the most interesting one. Yeah. Which is if you have product market fit. Right, and you're right. And your product is just working. It kind of doesn't matter that much initially how bad the team is. Right. It matters later. It's the difference between a $10 billion market cap and a $100 billion market mm-hmm. cap. 
Um, but fundamentally, if you have something good enough, unless you have a very strong competitive environment, like Microsoft, uh, like Microsoft um, yeah. then you're going to succeed. Yeah. And I think the other sort of contrarian thing that I've learned recently is... Okay, that's I do, a good law, Andy. I was going to make fun of him now. Uh, that's a good law. I yeah, no, that's law. actually a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the thing that I learned recently, which I was surprised by, is when you do reference checks on founders, for example, if you're looking at to invest, mm-hmm. a good reference check is definitely a positive signal. Right. But a negative reference check is a neutral signal. Okay, explain that. Um, so I'll give you an example. When I worked at Twitter, there was mm-hmm. somebody who was always just hanging out in the hallways, really sharp person, but never seemed really effectual, didn't really get anything done. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought this wasn't like the greatest person in the world. And that person now has one of the most successful companies out of Twitter. Okay. And so, you know, if somebody had called me and asked, what do you think of this person? I said, oh, this person's like not very good. I would never back them. Right. right. Um, and I've seen that with other companies as well that have now become actually quite large companies where mm-hmm. people passed because they did a reference check and the person wasn't great. Uh, so I took him to dinner a couple of weeks ago and I said, hey, what what happened? You know, right. how'd you become so good all of a sudden? Right, because you sucked, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say you sucked. Yeah. I, you know, I said very politely, I was like, well, you know, Twitter, you seem kind of, you know. Out of it. Uh, and he said, um, I finally feel like my ass is on the line. Ah. And so it was contextual, but it wasn't contextual that people always talk about where founders will fight with their managers and mm-hmm. their strong personalities. It was more the guy was just kind of, eh. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. he went on to do great things because he suddenly got really motivated. And I thought right. that was a really interesting insight. So negative ones are a neutral signal. Not always, though. You, you think that, you I think, think if it's ethics or other things, it's usually negative. Right. But if it's, you know, we're just something that person's very good, sometimes it doesn't matter. Although, you know, interestingly, I think about that because I was given a mostly positive references on someone a long time ago that I hired. And there was one sort of offhand one. I ran into mm. someone who had worked for them and they said something. And the problem that person later had was exactly what the offhand person said, hmm. not what the positive people. Yeah. It was an offhand. It was a lower level person mm-hmm. and it, was, it wasn't it was meant to be mean and I wasn't yeah. seeking the thing and it was exactly what the problem yeah. was. No, and, and I think reference and checks I, are it crucial. It stuck with me, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would actually, for employees, I think it's a very clear signal. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying for founders, mm-hmm. it isn't necessarily a negative signal. Mm-hmm. So you don't know who's going to shine. You just have no idea. And part of yeah. that is that middle tier of Ratcliffe's Law. Right. But part of it is also the motivation shifts strongly enough that sometimes somebody, somebody shifts it. as well. All right, one more, and then we're going to talk about specific things in the next section. Yeah. Um, Specifically Silicon Valley. Uh, so, like a Silicon Valley myth? Yeah. I can come up with some. Yeah, I'd love to hear yours. Um, I think the founder is God myth, I think. I do mm-hmm. think I, I do. I think you're right about there not needing to be partners. Mm-hmm. But I remember one thing Steve Jobs once said to me. He, he was talking about the company, and he said he didn't—this was offhand, and he mm-hmm. sort of backstage, and he's like, everyone always thinks I do everything. And, the, mm-hmm. you know, he had a healthy ego. More yeah, than yeah, healthy yeah, sure. Ego. But he's like, he thinks everybody—everybody everybody there is an Oompa Loompa at Apple, and actually mm-hmm. it's a stronger team, yeah. and they don't notice it. And he hated that. He, As much as he liked the attention, I think yeah. he also— understood that he had a strong team behind yeah, him. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, startups are really team efforts. Mm-hmm. And so one of the advice I often give founders as they're scaling is you actually don't need to do all the stuff that you think you need to do. Right. You need to find people who can. Right. And then empower them. And then you have like a team going after it. I mean, honestly, one of the bigger Silicon Valley myths, just to add a final one, mm-hmm. um, is the degree to which contrarianism tends to be correct. I uh, mean, exactly. contrarianism usually oh. is wrong. Yeah. And that's why it's contrarianism. Yeah. And people who are often contrarian are actually often wrong as well. It's just right. sometimes they really hit so it. It's called frequently wrong, but never in doubt. Yeah, exactly. And so I actually thought it'd be really cool uh, to construct a two by two matrix mm-hmm. of people who are contrarian versus people who use two by two matrices. Mm-hmm. And so in your upper right hand, who's both contrarian and makes matrices is Peter Thiel in his book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's people who are contrarian, but don't make matrices like Keith Raboy. Mm-hmm. And then you have people who make two by two matrices, but aren't contrarian like McKinsey consultants. Okay, explain two by two matrix. Right? Oh, I'm sorry, a two That's by okay. two matrix. Uh, we can skip this topic too, but okay. a two by two matrix is basically a, um, uh, you have two axes, a Y a axis box. and an X axis, and it's a box and you have four boxes and you say, okay, uh, let's divide things up into two characteristics and ask who has both characteristics, who has one or the other yeah. characteristic, and who has none. Yeah. And so for contrarianism, you can construct your own matrix. And right. it was sort of driven by Peter Thiel's book. Right, right. So uh, there, there's one in New York Magazine that's despicable and lowbrow and highbrow. It's great. There's oh, all the despicable and yeah, despicable, yeah. Uh, yeah. laudable and stuff. Um, so, so go ahead, finish with that. So, there, so contrarianism. Yeah, so I think contrarianism. Which is a very much celebrated in Silicon Valley. It's very celebrated, and rightly so, because I think 
um, if you're if you're constantly uh, falling into the status quo, you're never going to do anything great. Right. And so you do have to question things. You do have to look sure. at fundamentals. But most people who are contrarian and consistently contrarian are actually wrong. And you meet them sometimes, and you can't help but eye roll because you're like, ugh, like yeah. another. I'm a contrarian. I I'm get just that saying the time. opposite of everything that our, yeah. everybody else is saying. I was just tweeting. I just wrote a column about in the New York Times about Twitter, and someone's like, well, they're they just have always had a contrarian viewpoint. I said, and yet they can be wrong. Yeah, like, and they've been know, wrong the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> like being contrarian is not enough. In and out. they have a contrarian values. I'm like, they don't have any values. They're just being contrarian. Yeah, like I don't get it. Like that's just that's that's what a three year old. You have to be contrarian and right. Uh, or have something behind it, like, yeah. or, but they, it's, it tends to be like celebrated. I don't, you know, because there is a thing mm-hmm. of like when we started this podcast, nobody thought we should do it, and we just yeah. did it. I, I liked him, but it wasn't contrarian. It was I just like it. you know, it was yeah. an interesting thing. Um, all right, when we get back, we're talking. This is a really interesting discussion with Elad Gill. He's the author of a new book, High Growth Handbook: Scaling Startups from Ten to Ten Thousand People. We're going to talk about that when we get back, and then later we're going to talk more about where startups are in Silicon Valley now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Elad Gill, who's the author of a new book, High Growth Handbook, Scaling Startups from 10 to 10,000 People. He's also quite fascinating. Talk a little bit about this specific. So you go through product marketing. Yeah. So, reg- what else? Yeah, go. sure. Um, so there's sections on the role of the CEO. So what should you actually be doing as CEO? What should you mm-hmm. be focusing on? There's managing your board. So how do you deal with um, board members who aren't acting correctly, can you remove them? Can you not? How do you think mm-hmm. about constructing your board to begin with? Right. And um, I should say for each of these sections interwoven, there's specific interviews on those topics. So, for example, right. in the board section, there's yeah, an the interview section. with uh, Reed Hoffman yeah. around how does he think about board members and, mm-hmm. you know, um, how to how to manage the board effectively. So that'd be another so example. talk about that because I was just debating someone this issue, the boards, because they were mm-hmm. they, this, there was an idea that you should put workers on the boards, on, on every mm-hmm. board, and should it be legislated or not? I think it is a great idea. Mm-hmm. I think it's always a great idea mm-hmm. to get workers on the board and legislate it if you have to because usually mm-hmm. they pack these things with their friends and idiots so it tends to be mm-hmm. you know it never mm-hmm. tends to be a very good board and Silicon Valley boards I've written about quite a lot mm-hmm. are quite weak I mean as far as I can tell some mm-hmm. of them are they don't think they are but they often pack them with VCs there's mm-hmm. always it's typically white guys it's you know yeah. they, they grudgingly put a woman on they, even though they're their custody you know mm-hmm. what I mean anyway talk about sort of sure. how boards are comprised yeah I think really the way to think about your board is to evolve it so to right. your point what may be right really early which is the founders and a couple of VCs maybe a terrible board well, later. Right. As a company it just skills. is. I don't ever think well, it was right in the first place. It, it depends on what you're looking for from okay. a board. I think in general, venture capital is a bundled product. Right. Right. So it's a bundle of advice, okay. uh, money, Allegedly. and governance. I think it's just money. And no, I was about to say, in many cases, you know, nobody's great at all those three things, or very few people right. are. And so my argument is actually it shouldn't be a bundled product, right? It right. should be unbundled. Right. And you should have great people on the board That's who are amazing smart. at advice and governance, mm-hmm. and you can get capital separately. Right. And to some extent, you could argue the cryptocurrency world is doing that very badly, mm-hmm. right? It, like yeah. They've sort of taken that to the opposite extreme in mm-hmm. terms of not really thinking through some of these structures. Um, but fundamentally, you have this bundled product, and it's a it's an accident of history, mm-hmm. right? Because some of the people who are giving money back then actually were helpful or, yes. or you know did have advice. And that's shifted dramatically. That said, you know, when you start thinking through who you want on your board as an early stage company, you do want to look for people who are able to help with those other elements and not mm-hmm. just give you money. And there's only a handful of people who are really good at that in Silicon Valley. Right. right? Most investors are not great at that. Yeah. Um, as your company starts to scale, the set of issues uh, change pretty dramatically, right? Mm-hmm. You go from, you know, an early stage company where there's really honestly only three things you have to do as an early stage company. Mm-hmm. These are hard things, but... Mm-hmm. Don't run out of money. Right. Find product market fit and don't fight with your co-founder. Right. And if you do those three things, you'll succeed. Yep. And that's it. That's yes. all an early stage company has <laughs> all to All right, do. then. Um, it's really hard, they though. break them all. It's the really time. hard. Um, a late stage company is way more complicated. Mm-hmm. You have new functions to run that you've never actually been involved with. Right. You're internationalizing. You're buying companies. You're launching mm-hmm. new product lines that you didn't have before. Right. The scaling um, of employees. You're scaling sales and other things. So you have all these different things going on. 
and the board should sort of evolve with that because right. suddenly you're going to need people who can help you with some of those things or who mm-hmm. understand the market and the regulation or who understand other aspects. Mm-hmm. And to your point, there's also that the, the key aspect of board diversity of also finding people who then reflect right. your user base or the employee base that you want. I'm not just saying that. I'm not trying to be yeah. reductive. It's just a really interesting thing when they all evolve in exactly the same way. And mm-hmm. it's not the right way necessarily. And I think a lot of their problems always evolve from the lack of viewpoints, mm-hmm. like that the, the, they didn't think of it and because they can't pick their head up off the table and look Mm -hmm. around and see people just like them, you're not going to get the correct viewpoint. Yeah, I think that's starting to evolve a bit, but it's going to take time. Why doesn't it evolve? What do you... Um, I think there's a couple of hard problems. Uh, They're not hard, but there's problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is just often boards are sort of network driven. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I have a section in the book actually about avoid the VC crony. You know, right. don't find the person that's, no that's uh, always doing things with the VC who gets added to your board and they're basically like a proxy. Right. Really what you should be doing is looking really broadly and asking what are we really looking for? And the way I think of a board member, and I think Reid Hoffman actually made this point in the book as well, is um, it's somebody that you'd love to work with or even co-found a company with, but you can't hire. Mm-hmm. And so that should be the type of person that you're looking for as a board member. Right. You know, and... Right. Um, that may have different characteristics in terms of the market you're in or um, how you're thinking about the future evolution of what you're doing. For example, uh, Coinbase added Katie Honda to the board in part because of her regulatory expertise and background. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that was a good example where they said, okay, who can help us with something that's really important for the industry that we're in and who are the best people for that? And let's, let's add them on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't happen because the founders don't have guts or, what, or they're just not thinking of the, that as a useful function well, for them? Well, I think... Uh, early on, they just don't have a better idea or they don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. you're learning so much. Just say that you're a 23-year-old engineer mm-hmm. and you've never been exposed to any of these things. You've never mm-hmm. been exported to boards or governance or companies at any real scale. Mm-hmm. This is all new. And you're learning 30 different things simultaneously while you're also trying to keep a product going and a company up and you're learning management mm-hmm. for the first time and you're learning new functions for the first time. It's actually really hard. Right. And the first time people go through it, it's just this chaotic roller coaster and it's very emotional and awful. Mm-hmm. The second time people go through it, it tends to get better. Right. Um, but the first time is always awful. Right, right. So it's lack of knowledge. It's yeah, like it's total lack of knowledge. So when yeah. you say it's gone too slow and then I want to get on to another topic, why does it – I really want to get at the heart of why it goes slow because mm-hmm. it's a really interesting thing because it should be – you know, I think what happens and now it feels like mm-hmm. vegetable, eat your vegetables uh-huh. or homework or something like that when it really mm-hmm. isn't. It's actually better. Um, and years ago, I often tell this story mm-hmm. is when Twitter had uh, 10 white, same white men on yeah. the board and, and Dick and I would argue about it. And he, he was like, well, it just happened that way. And I was like, mm-hmm. how could it? Like, don't you want to know how it happened? Mm-hmm. Like, aren't you thinking hard about yeah. how that got? I think every late stage company that I'm involved with at this point is thinking about adding diversity to their board. Right. So that's why I'm saying but it's I think not diversity it's for diversity's sake. Besides being sure. the right thing to do, which yeah, it is, sure. and that's a very good reason to do mm-hmm. anything in life, um, mm-hmm. it actually, it's almost as if they're willfully trying to be worse at what they do, like by not understanding mm. more viewpoints, not being challenged. I, uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't think people are purposefully avoiding being challenged, mm-hmm. at least the best founders that I know aren't. I'm sure there's people who are, right? I guess but. I feel like they find boards useless or something. So why, who cares? I think uh, if, to your point, you basically keep five VCs on a board forever, it's going to be useless once you become a yeah. late-stage public company. But or there a they sit. Company. Uh, they, they've started moving people off more aggressively. Yeah. Um, you see some of these transitions. Um, to your point on the Twitter board, there were some people who were actually helpful throughout the life of the company, like mm-hmm. Peter Fenton, mm-hmm. who I think was always a great board member. Um, but I think they basically turned over the board two or three times now in part to start to change that mix right. and ask who do we want on here and, and what so sort of people do So what are the we... two, two or three key things in boards? No cronies. What else? Uh, no cronies. Uh, really think about it as somebody that you would have loved to hire or brings a unique skill set to the team. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, find somebody who also respects you. Right. Because the worst thing you can do is have sort of the old timer who's uh, giving come you, at you. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. Let's get to uh, another topic, which is employees and, and trying to scale employees. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Because one thing I noticed a lot of companies, AOL, lots of companies, they have this group of people at the beginning that just aren't going to make it. Now, mm-hmm. I remember going to lunch with someone who was going to be incredibly wealthy at mm-hmm. AOL in the early days. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I'm like, you're not going to make it. Yeah. They're going to push you out of the boat and you yeah. should be, you should jump mm-hmm. because you got your money, go off and do something else. Mm-hmm. And it was a really interesting thing because it's a hard thing emotionally because a lot of these teams were yeah. tight together initially. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I think um, it's really hard for people who were really early at a company. Like the 10. Yeah, the first 10 people or the first 20 Google people. Google was full of them. It, it had a lot of them. And um, I call it like old timer syndrome, irrespective of the age, right? It's mm-hmm. more just people who'd been at the company since the origins, and that could be four years ago. It didn't have to be yeah, that long ago. Yeah, yeah. And they feel a little bit overly empowered and important relative to yes, the company. Exactly. And so um, 
I think the the key thing is that really what you need to focus on is explaining to those people that the company is evolving, the culture is evolving. They're not going to be having lunch with the CEO every day like they used to. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be they have input in plane. every decision. Like one of them was always I'm on the plane. Like, uh, <laughs> that's probably a Google story. Yeah, it is. Um, of course it is. And so. Uh, you know, really their their role is going to evolve and really what's going to happen is their role is going to shrink and then it'll expand later because they have the trust of the founders, they have the context, they have right. all the things that actually make them incredibly valuable. Uh, but they can't throw a mini fit about the fact that they're losing responsibility. Yeah. And, um, you know, an example of that would be say that you're the first designer at a company mm-hmm. and you're designing the whole product and the surface area mm-hmm. keeps growing and then suddenly they hire two more designers and your role just shrunk by a third. Right. Sometimes you may get really upset about that and you may fight with the new people and try and grab things. In reality, what you should be doing is saying, this is awesome. Let's continue to build out the team because if you act well and you're helping others, eventually you may become the manager of that group, right? right. You may get more and more responsibility. Right. So a general rule is your responsibility will shrink and then it'll expand and you need to be okay with Which that I, shrinking. You can't think about that. And what if you're the actual founder that has to do that when someone just isn't up to the task? Yeah. The hard part is many founders make two mistakes. One is they tolerate good instead of great in a role, mm-hmm. in part because of that relationship to that prior person. Yes. And secondly, they cut way too much slack, even if the person's doing an awful job, because they feel like they owe them for the early efforts that they made. Right. And I do agree they they owe them for the early efforts they made and obviously they're well compensated financially and other things but um i think fundamentally what you owe is the organization and the hundred other people that came in on top of them Mm -hmm. who now are being impacted by this person who may be acting in a negative way one of the interviews in the in the in the high growth handbook was with ruchi sangvi who was an early um engineer and then product person at facebook Mm -hmm. and she talks in the book about how in the er early days at facebook she um and then later she sold the company dropbox right so she said at facebook um, she was the person who was always fighting everybody new and fighting process and throwing a fit. And then when she came into Dropbox through the acquisition, her job was to be that old time, that new person coming in and instilling process and changing things. Right. And she saw the resistance on the other side. And she yep. said that was a really key learning moment in yes, terms absolutely. of these, two, these yeah. two aspects. Yeah, that's the way we do it here. Yeah. Yeah, I like to blow things up all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like, someone was like, well, we did it for I'm like, I don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's, and it's hard for people. And it's actually sometimes a test. Like, can you move mm-hmm. along? Um, that's hard. Um, all right. Then the last thing in this section. Um, so when you're a founder, the same thing, stepping aside. Mm-hmm. The idea that you're not the one. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to be. Pierre Omidyar was sort of the best example of smarts. Pierre was good at that. Reed did that really well, yes, too, I feel. So I think yeah. there's a few people who have done it. I think uh, one of the big shifts in Silicon Valley, and I, I call it like the Sheryl Sandberg effect, was mm-hmm. that transition from the hard gun CEO always coming in to people coming in as really strong COOs and mm-hmm. complementing the founder. Mm-hmm. And that's done two things. One is I think it's helped founders grow and evolve and continue to have yes, their vision. Them, yeah. The negative version of it is that it's enabled people to stick around when maybe they shouldn't, right? right. Because they're sort of being propped up a little bit. Right. Um, I think fundamentally it comes down to do you have the self-awareness to decide that it's the right moment for you to go and for somebody else to, to come on board and replace you. And how you. do you do that? How, do, how does... I think it's uh, a few things. One is looking and seeing if things are breaking because of you, and if mm-hmm. so, can you fix that or not? So right. if you're constantly the bottleneck for everything, you're not doing things right, how do you fix that? And again, if you're managing people for the first time and doing all this for the first time, I think it's a great opportunity to learn things, and you need to be willing and open-minded to do that. You should do maybe a 360 feedback cycles so you get feedback from everybody around you so you can mm. understand what your issues are right. or how you can improve. So a lot of it is um, focusing on getting better first through getting information or data around what's going wrong, then finding people who can help you in terms mm-hmm. of building out those skills. And if none of that's working, you may decide, you know what, maybe it is time for somebody else to for come in. For someone to come in. And that's yeah. a hard thing because a lot really of them hard. don't. And that's yeah. usually where the fatal error comes in. Very few can evolve. I mean, I think like Jeff Bezos was mm-hmm. an evolver. He evolved and stayed you know, mm-hmm. fresh in that role and has obviously continued to. Um, a little bit of more maturity mm-hmm. does help in that ability to do that. Maturity absolutely helps. And I actually think that's one of the interesting things is, is as you watch certain founders age, you know, mm-hmm. some companies have been involved with now for 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, um, over their life cycle. And you actually see the founders growing up and evolving and maturing in exactly those ways. Ryan Chesky. And yeah, no, great example, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's he's really stepped up in amazing ways. Yeah, I didn't think CEO. he was going to make it, but then he did. Uh, but he did, right? Yeah. And so I do think sometimes cutting people slack and saying, look, they're a young person figuring this out. Let's help mm-hmm. them right. is often a better stance than, hey, let's just get rid of them, which was, right. which was the 90s. Right, which is get rid of them and replace them yeah. with someone else, exactly. you know, which is the classic Steve Jobs mistake, yeah. right? Although yeah. not a bad thing for him or them at the time. Like it did create yeah. a situation where he got better. Absolutely. I think if he hadn't come back and Apple had died at that moment, 
people would have uh, interpreted it very differently in all sorts of ways, which I think is fascinating. It's Absolutely. sort of an alternative timeline. Absolutely. Uh, we're talking to Elad Gill. He's the co-founder of Color Genomics. He's also the author of a new book called High Growth Handbook, Scaling Startups from 10 to 10,000 People. When we get back, we're going to talk more about that and then some individual companies he's worked with. We're here with Elad Gill. He's the co-founder of Color Genomics, but right now he's talking about his new book called High Growth Handbook. Let's talk about this idea of growth, high growth. Like it's mm. such a, a thing in Silicon Valley, and a lot of people now, including mm-hmm. that the growth at all costs is, has costs. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just that these companies don't pay for them. I've written about Facebook and mm-hmm. Twitter and others. Yeah. Talk a little bit about what's happened in Silicon Valley right now and the startup culture, because I think there's a real – some people mm-hmm. think the startups are sort of – not dying off, but the, the big companies mm-hmm. are not dominating everything. Some people feel the innovation cycle mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. at a low point. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. Um, I think from an innovation cycle perspective, um, Arthur Patterson, the mm-hmm. uh, one of the co-founders of Excel, That's right. has this great uh, cycle that he sort of mapped out mm-hmm. when uh, basically what happened is in the late uh, 90s, Excel made a bunch of investments that turned out to be bad investments. In the early 2000s, their fund almost went under. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of their LPs pulled out. And so Arthur Patterson looked back over history in terms of uh, venture over the last 30 years and came up with a, what some people now call the Patterson venture cycle in terms of saying, you know, there's these different cycles of technology waves. And he tried to convince people that they were at a low point. And then obviously two years after that, that's when Excel made the famous Facebook investment and it mm-hmm. sort of really catapulted them to the next level. Um, you know, so personally, I do think we're at sort of the lull in a venture cycle right now from the perspective of we just had SaaS, uh, mobile, and social all overlapping each other mm-hmm. as three big waves. Right. And I feel like that those waves kind of broke in 2016, but nobody really noticed and sort of the, the capital in the market just kept going. Right. And so I do think we, at least personally, I've seen less um, innovative companies relative to the number of companies that exist. In other right. words, good companies versus all companies has kind of shrunk as a proportion. They've and I think certainly. part of that's driven you by can't a, think why of not? Uh, think of a good one? You can't think of one. I mean, you you yeah. used to think of 10. Like, you know what I, I mean? I think there's some pretty good ones still, but I think it's right. rare. But newer yeah. ones. I'm saying newer ones and more fresh ones. Yeah. What would you say? I'm just curious if you want to name names. Uh, I mean, there's a few companies that I think are really interesting. Um, Airtable would be one. Checker yes. would be one. Front would be one. Wait, Airtable. So, Checker. Right. Front. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matilda's company. She's right. very good. So I think there's a few of these that, you know, are, are doing really And in what areas are there? They have to be in subject matter areas or... Uh, you know, I think the the most interesting subject matter areas right now are basically um, semiconductors for machine learning. Mm-hmm. So things that will actually compete with NVIDIA GPUs. I think there's mm-hmm. fascinating stuff happening there. And nobody's doing semiconductor investing right. anymore. Yep. But actually, right. I think that's, absolutely right. that's a really, really interesting been area. A, a big breakout. So. NVIDIA's been a huge breakout. And if you compare them to things like that Google's... smart. Uh, yeah, he's, 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 he's quite good. Yeah. yeah, if you compare what NVIDIA is doing to... You know, Google, who's built their own custom silicon for machine learning, Google's hardware is way better. Mm-hmm. And so there's now startups trying to build that outside of Google. Right. So I think that's a really interesting area. I think um, just ongoing SaaS and things like that, there's a dozen new giant SaaS companies to build. Mm-hmm. And then I actually think... In what areas? I think what Checker's done, for example, where they've made a background checking API and just mm-hmm. taken something that companies do over and over again. Yep, yep, yep. I think there's like a dozen of those yeah, if you just were right. to yeah. decompose a Fortune 500 company. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I think crypto is fascinating and it's basically a... Um, giant form of value creation coupled to 95% crap. Mm-hmm. And so it's this really yes, it interesting is. dual wave of really interesting fundamental parties. things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've actually been avoiding all crypto parties. Yeah, don't go to them. Yeah. I, I only they're going dark now. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Wow. There's a, it's used a dark to be some web. fun ones now. Oh, don't even talk to me yeah. about that. Um, so go ahead. Crypto. Talk about it. Yeah. So I think crypto is, is really interesting. And I think there's a fascinating analogy to the 90s where there's a handful of things that were founded in the 90s internet that turned out to be extremely valuable. Uh, you know, Amazon would be one, PayPal, et cetera. Um, there was things that came a few years later, like Google, Facebook, et cetera. I guess Google was founded mm-hmm. then, but it was private. Um, and I think in crypto, we're in a similar wave where there's tons of stuff in the 90s that was crap that went to zero. Um, there's tons of stuff that ended up being really valuable. And then I actually think the most fascinating segment are things that uh, in the 90s looked like craters and everybody made fun of and now mm-hmm. have come back in a new form today that's really successful. Such as? Webvan and Instacart. Right. Or uh no, they were always good ideas. Uh, there, was, there was great it was ideas. timing and execution. Pets.com. Everybody mm-hmm. made fun of Pets.com. Now Chewy mm-hmm. sold for $2 billion plus, right? right? And so there's there's a couple of these. And I think in crypto, it'll be the same timing. thing where the market, yeah, there's all sorts Look, of things people Newton are doing, which is just or General Magic. There's just yeah. been a movie on it. That was right. Yeah. That was wrong. You know what I mean? It's just timing in yeah. a lot of ways. And execution. Yeah. Timing and execution. Yeah. 
And then you have to have all the pieces in place. Exactly. So um, how do you assess the startup culture right now? Because, again, a lot of people mm. feel it is a little desiccated out there. I think there's fewer. And, and the impact yeah. of the big companies. Talk about the impact of the big companies. Yeah. Because they mean, seem to dominate everything right now. I think the big companies them, right? are, are dominating a lot of things. I think it's different from the 90s, for example. Really, it was, it was just, just Windows and right. you know Microsoft and maybe Intel on the other mm-hmm. side of it. And everything else got squeezed. Um, I think today it's actually more dynamic and from the perspective you have five companies and then you also have the Chinese yes. giants, right. uh, which I think is a really interesting uh, trend. But I still You're think there's a right. lot of room and there's lots of cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that's happened is a lot of founders end up selling when they could have kept going right. because these companies have such large market caps. Right. And so the big question in my mind is less about whether there's going to be innovative big companies um, outside of those big five, but more how, how long will they keep going? Because Uber could have sold earlier mm-hmm. or other companies could have sold earlier and they kept going. Right. Um, so the real question is who will keep going and who won't? Right. And then who similarly will be aggressive and ambitious? You know, at Google, mm-hmm. the primary way that Larry uh, Page would get upset uh, if you were going into a product review is if you weren't thinking big enough. Right. He'd always say, why can't this be a billion dollar thing instead of the hundred million thing you're talking about? Right. Um, a lot of founders don't do that. Right. And so they never do that next wave of product or the, right. the next cycle. And so they just lose out. And so I think there's some companies who are doing that now, like Uber with Uber Eats and other mm-hmm. services. But I think many of the um, sort of very... They stay in their lane. Yeah. They stay in their lane a little bit more. And I think that's actually a detriment to yeah. innovation. Why do they do that? I think it's founder driven fundamentally. Right. They're worried. Yeah. Yeah. Lack of creativity is what it is, Elon. No, <laughs> no, but they do. They do. I, but I do think there is – the problem is there was a Microsoft and then you could sort of you yeah, know, you jet ski around, around it. it. Yeah. But you could. And now they're, the, the jet skiing is harder because these big companies and they don't precisely compete with each other. I'm trying to mm-hmm. get this concept to write about it because they don't dire- – like when I asked Mark what's his competitor, mm-hmm. he couldn't come yeah. up with one, and he was right. Like he kind of has competitors, but he doesn't. So they mm-hmm. dominate over in this lane, and it's like big semis on the mm-hmm. highway. Uh, Amazon dominates in this lane. Google mm-hmm. dominates on this lane. Apple dominates. Yeah. I think know. each of them has a large core primary business that spins off cash that allows them to invest in other areas. Right. And it's those other areas where they're competing. Right. And so their core dominant area. They're not competing in. Right. So they but, get to save that. But everywhere else they are. So, And I think maybe the place with the biggest overlap would be Android and iPhone. Yes. Where that's clear of heads-on competition. Yes, it is. And yet it's not because people make the ch- – you pick your – You, you kind of stick to the brand over time. You stick to the time. brand, right? Yeah. And it's kind of very differentiated and they're not – And there's also different price points. There's lots right. of reasons. Yeah. Right. Um, but fundamentally, I think there are points of competition. It's more just that you know, each one has their own core. Around that, the edges of entertainment, safer. and then there's Hollywood at the same time because it's yeah. really interesting. So how do you assess the sort of startup culture right now in Silicon Valley and elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Where do you think the excitement yeah. is going on? Obviously, yeah, you I were think, born in Jerusalem. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, the thing that I worry most about startup culture is a loss of optimism. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that a lot of the rise of cynicism that's Mm -hmm. been happening in Silicon Valley is a huge net negative because I think ultimately optimism is a reflexive asset. But go ahead. uh, (laughs) Like George George Soros has this great uh, notion of a reflexive asset. You know, Mm -hmm. the more people believe in something, the more likely it is Mm -hmm. to accrete value. And, um, you know, I think fundamentally optimism is one of those things where the more people believe that you can do great positive things to the world through technology, mm-hmm. the more people will. And the bigger you think, you'll think, and therefore to that Larry Page point, the bigger you'll actually accomplish. Right. And so one founder that um, I invested in emailed me a few weeks ago basically saying that he was at a dinner party and everybody started making fun of him because he said he wanted to change the world through his company, which mm-hmm. I think is great. You know, right. There should be people who want to do good things for right. people through their companies. Um, and so my feedback to him was find better friends. You uh, know? <laughs> like you shouldn't hang out with these well, people. Well, there's a weariness factor that comes in and the damage yeah. that has clearly been done by some of these companies. And I think yeah. you can't – I'm going to push back on this sure. because – Optimism is good, but some mm-hmm. of this optimism has gotten us into the mess that we're in now. Well, it'd be an example of optimism translating into bad, because I think there's bad behavior translating right. into bad. I think outcomes. some of I think some of these, as I have argued mm-hmm. many times, that some of these creations has have mm-hmm. side effects that they don't want to take responsibility yeah. for, and they're heavy. Mm-hmm. There's some heavy side yeah. effects, right? That's that's different. That's not about optimism okay. or pessimism. That's right. about owning your shit. Right. In but other they, words, but, but they, yeah. they, they conflate the two. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you're negative. I'm like, no, you made a mm-hmm. fucking mess over here. Clean it up. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't do, you know, yeah. it, it reminds me with something I always say, like, you don't, I, I've said this several times, mm-hmm. is that you don't want to be the person at Kitty Hawk saying, uh-huh. oh, they only got 10 feet off the ground. Sure. That's shitty. Yeah. Like, they flew, right? You want to be, yeah, yeah, yeah. they frigging flew. You want to say yeah. that. Um, those those Wright brothers. Yeah, yeah. And not be the, ne- the negative or contrarian, for yeah, example. Yeah. And at the same time, there is a, 
a regular and mm-hmm. persistent uh, technique that Silicon Valley people do, mm-hmm. which is ignore the impact of their inventions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think those are separable, though. It's okay. sort of like um, your kid gets into Harvard, but they never clean their room. They should clean right. their room. Right. But it's still great they got into Harvard. Right? Yes, exactly. And so I do think these are separable things. Yeah. Um, and I worry that there's such a rise of cynicism right. relative to anything a tech company does now. Mm-hmm. And I think some of it is earned, right? Like some earned. companies have made yeah. all sorts of mistakes along the way. Right. I'm not justifying that at all. Right. I'm just saying it shouldn't bleed over to the 22-year-old person who's yeah. really excited about making great change right. and who's never done all that shit. You know, they should Although, learn from the mistakes of others. I would also but, argue that we yeah. have celebrated them a lot. They get They get licked up and down all the time for a decade now. And mm-hmm. when people say just a second, they're not used mm-hmm. to that. I think we've sort of raised, it's almost like raised mm-hmm. overindulged children. Yeah, and so it's Everything sort of like the... Here's an award for this. Here's yeah, yeah, and I think it's sort of we're, we're swinging back on the pendulum. Yeah. I just hope we don't swing back too hard. Right. Because I do think there's lots of good that's been done, and I'll give you a very stupid, trivial example, okay. right? Um, I was, very I was, stupid. Go ahead. It's a, <laughs> um, you know, I was looking, I, I wanted to, to cook some, I have an 18-month-old, so I wanted mm-hmm. to cook something for him. Thank you. And um, you feed them, they get bigger. That's, oh, are you that's serious? That's how it works. Advice. I had no I idea. It's been yeah. working. It's, it's they just get spontaneous. Real big and they eat more. I was just but guessing until now, no, so no, I'm glad to hear that. Move along. Um, so I, uh, I, was, I was cooking for him in the way that I found the recipes. I just opened up my phone and I pulled up a recipe and sure. I made it in two seconds. You know, 20 years ago, I would have called five people. I would have looked for somebody who knew it, or I'd have to go down to the public library to check out a yeah. recipe book. Yeah. Right? It's actually the amount of information and access that we have in a friction-free way on a global basis is shocking. And mm-hmm. people really forget that. Right. Like just 20 years ago, oh, how no. different it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so technology companies have had this massive impact and they yeah. have helped tons of people and they've you know, really helped yes. help pull a lot of people out of poverty and, other, mm-hmm. and yes. help solve other issues. That doesn't mean that bad behavior should be excused by right. any means. I'm just saying if things get really cynical and dark, mm-hmm. we're actually going to be shutting down the people who want to do good work. Okay. And I think that's a really bad trend. Okay. The only part about that is that, like, Hollywood people make great movies that entertain us. They don't sit around mm-hmm. and pat themselves on the back almost continually. And I think, Except for the Oscars. Yeah. I know. <laughs> who watches those, right? Who watches those? Yeah. But, I mean, it's I, then let's have just an Oscars and then be done with it uh-huh. once a year. Sure. You know, kind of thing. Because they, they literally, if you make one criticism, they're like, but I did this. And I'm like, I'm not really mm-hmm. interested in, you know what I mean? It's a really mm-hmm. interesting. And again, I think it does, goes to the juvenilization of mm-hmm. mostly men here. And so it's, it's that they're they're not responsible for what they do and they're not, um, they're not, it, it, you can be cynical and you can be honest about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think it's hard. The minute you are honest with them, they think you're being mean. Mm. And it's a really, it's a really interesting thing because yeah. I encounter it a lot. I think that's a, a generic thing for uh, people who have accumulated enough wealth or power over time, right. irrespective of industry. And that's a whole other part. Yeah, the yeah. wealth and power part makes mm-hmm. them immune to that because yeah. what happens is people lick them up and down all day. Well, I guess my point is that's true of every industry. That's not tech-specific. In other words, if you talk to somebody from the hedge fund world, you talk to somebody who's a famous artist who's done really yeah. well, it's every person that I've interacted with, not every person, many people that I've interacted with from other industries mm-hmm. have people around them who are basically benefiting but from being close to them. I think those Wall Street people know they're assholes. I think they never forget. I, I don't know. I think, I these, know. Guys, I think yeah. these guys have a bit, they look in the mirror and see a different version of what they're, mm-hmm. and, and it's okay to have a, co- having complex thoughts about yourself mm-hmm. is really hard here. Mm-hmm. It's, they're much more reductive, which I is. I blame Twitter. Yeah, do you? I blame Twitter for everything. That's what I did today. Um, so in finishing up, are we in a high growth period? Because you talked about China, yeah. with the pressure from China, which is amazingly mm-hmm. hard. Um, and as it should be, mm-hmm. um, what do you give us some predictions of where you, what do you think is going to happen? What needs to happen? Mm-hmm. And then what will happen? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I worry about is when interest rates eventually come up and what does that mean for the entire tech mm-hmm. economy? Right. Um, and I do think that, you know, half of all the unicorns out there are overvalued, mm-hmm. you know, like many yeah. of them actually don't have the fundamentals that would, mm-hmm. would get this valuation that they have. And we also have a generation of founders who've grown up in a up market. It's up been market, a decade right. yep. and a capital rich environment. Right. And when that shuts down, I think it's going to be really messy for two reasons. One is people haven't dealt with it before. Right. But equally importantly, our government is currently using up everything that you'd normally use during a recession to stimulate things. You do right. tax cuts, you'd have low interest rates, you do all yes, these things. More tricks, right. So we're basically, um, once interest rates do go up and the economy cools down or the ability to have free capital cools down, A, I think a lot of uh, unicorns will sort of go under. And then secondly, I think um, the big question is how long will that last? And I don't mm-hmm. think it's happening in six months. I think it'll happen eventually, but then it could be mm-hmm. uh, pretty prolonged in terms of the outcome. So I worry about the macro side. 
the flip side of it is I am very optimistic about the fact that you can suddenly truly reach billions of people in a friction-free way for the first time, and you do see companies growing faster uh, and bigger than ever. And I think that's because we've created these big efficiencies in markets. And mm -hmm. I think that's a really fascinating trend in terms of company formation because suddenly uh, you can really get to, to, to enormous scale very rapidly like you couldn't before. Right. And so? So I think you're going to see more companies getting uh, to, you know, $50, $100 billion market cap than you ever had before. And we were already mm -hmm. seeing that with some of the companies that have existed over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And Silicon Valley being the locus of this? I think uh, Silicon Valley uh, will be one. I think uh, obviously Beijing and China is another. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Silicon Valley does have risk in part due to just poor governance of the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. I do worry about the impact that's going to have. And I think people underweight that and actually think it's a real existential threat. Over I agree. Time. I completely agree. This yeah. is the city has all of them. All of them. They just the, the, yeah, it's the, gotten really the, bad. The expenses, the everything else yeah. it creates. So what happens then? I think uh, so. Physical things matter. Yeah, the real world matters. Yeah, you know? um, yeah. I, I worry about it a lot. I think there's some basic things that could be done around housing, around policing, around mm -hmm. um, helping uh, uh, with mental health or other aspects of homelessness. Um, so I do think there's three or four different areas where interventions would be very valuable. The key question is: Will city government um, actually act on those? Um, will the tech community engage in those and try and help? And will how they will just try us try to stop tech people from having lunch? Yeah, I think that's really oh a good God. idea. You know, people shouldn't eat lunch. Oh, my God. Intermittent fasting is in. That guy. Yeah. I mean, really. Yeah. Like, with all the problems of the city, that's what they go for. I just, I, I'm going to rip that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a great series of tweets around and that. I don't, yeah. I believe me, I think tech people are over and I can't believe I'm on the tech people yeah. side on this one. But I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, no, it's, it's just bad policies. It's basically... Uh, San Francisco has made a lot of mistakes over time, and they mm -hmm. haven't corrected it. And it, it seems like if that doesn't correct, you end up with some low point, mm -hmm. and then you end up with a Giuliani-type mayor, which is effectively right, what that's happened right. in New yeah. York. The question is, when does that happen? Yeah, they either bear hug thing? tech or they kick it, in the, kick them in the shins. And I'm yeah. like, neither of these things are the correct way. Yeah. Like you can you can force them into really good actions, you yeah. know, in a night in a way that helps everybody. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that just need to get fixed about the fundaments of, of that's just San Francisco, but it's happening all over the Bay Area. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, do you have any? Uh, are you going to start a new company? Uh, not like anytime soon. Medicine? So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, try and Have recharge you lost a bit. The energy, and, um, do I don't think I've lost the energy. Uh, you definitely see some people who completely never want to start a, or run a company again. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's lots of positives to running a company. You know, at least for this stage of my life, like I want to focus on family and kids and other yeah. things. And I think it's it's harder to do that when when you, you have a startup rich, as well. Yeah, that's the problem. Nah, that's you know, it does affect. So the funny thing is. It wasn't until this book that my mom felt like I was going to be okay in life. Ah, and so, you get one of those moms. Uh, yeah, and so she'd always come and she'd leave like, you know, the $50 check. Oh, you're like, kidding. you know, buried in the pile of my mail. So I'd find it after she leaves oh, and all this stuff. God. It was very sweet, That's right? Very sweet. And I kept telling her, look, you should be saving this for your retirement. Like, I'm fine. I can also mm -hmm. help, blah, blah, blah. And then when the book came out, it was the first time she didn't do that when she visited. And oh, I think she's good. like, oh, you finally made it. You have a book. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's so I thought good. that was kind of neat. Successfully. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness, because we were all worried. She's like, you it. don't have to be a doctor after all. Right, all. I'm going to finish on one thing, which I finished up a lot to people. What's a mistake you made? I know it's a reductive, stupid question, but it actually elicits some very good responses. For a startup founder, what's the one you'd avoid? Oh, uh, I think uh, it depends if, if it's early or late. Most of the mistakes late are about hiring decisions mm -hmm. or just uh, misunderstanding the market or your customers, but typically it's hiring decisions. Uh, and hiring could mean things like you don't hire an HR person soon enough, or, or mm -hmm. it could mean that you have the wrong person in place for too long and it kind of screws up an organization mm -hmm. in a way that's hard to recover or it takes a while to recover from. Uh, for early, you know, the biggest mistakes are continuing down a path that clearly isn't working for too long mm -hmm. um, or fighting with your co-founder. Okay. Did you do that? Every co-founder fights. Right. Uh, you know, I started a second company with Almond, so we obviously mm -hmm. work really well together. But right. I don't know of a single co-founder relationship where there's never been a disagreement. All right, then. All right. Thank you so much. It's been a really fascinating discussion, Elad, and thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. That helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. And Eled's book, just so you know, is called High Growth Handbook, Scaling Startups from 10 to 10,000 People. A million people told me I had to interview them, and they were unfortunately right. 
I'm wrong as usual. Uh, and thanks for coming on. And thanks for listening to this episode of Rico Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. 